Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. We are uh, going to continue in the book of James today, and again, if you're new with us, if the first time joining us, the reason that we're in the book of James is because James is arguably the most practical book in Scripture. There is a lot of wonderful, wonderful Scripture that exists in our Bible, and a lot of it provides us with a good theological basis for understanding. And James's concern isn't so much about helping people become followers of Jesus. His concern is taking followers of Jesus and saying, this is how you live it out. This is what it looks like to walk in faith. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And honestly, there is, I said this the other week, I'm just going to say it again, there's this very fatherly voice that James has where he's kind of telling the people he's writing to, get your act together, okay? And that comes through in spades. When we look at the book of James and we let it really speak to us, That voice, hey, get your act together, really comes through. Especially as we have a conversation today, like we were talking about the kids, we are talking about faith and deeds. And so if you have all deeds and no faith, if you have all faith and no deeds, James is saying, hey, it's time for you to get your act together today. And so that's what we're gonna talk about. So if you have a Bible with you, um, open it up to James chapter two. You have a Bible app, you can pull that out. If you don't own a Bible, I wanna encourage you to take one of the Bibles from the pew or the, the seats here. You can take that with you. We are not gonna hunt you down. We want you to have it. Um, James chapter two, verse 12, and I'm gonna read our passage and then we will jump in. And as you're opening up, parents that have kids in the service today, thank you. Uh, thank you for being flexible today from, from this parent to you. I really appreciate it. Um, Kids are a blessing, and then it's okay that they're making noise, it's okay that they move around because that's who kids are and we want kids to be with us. So know that and thank you for being willing to, to stick it out this morning. All right, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. 
You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. All right, that's our passage. And if you have your Bible open, you're reading out of it, you might notice that I span, like you have a heading break somewhere in there. So verse 12 is in the previous section and then the rest of it's in a new section. Maybe your Bible's not split up that way. But if it is, you might wonder, why are we doing that? And the honest truth is, I think this is one thought. I think that that, those couple verses, verse 12 especially, I think that's the key to understanding the rest of it this morning. So we're gonna start there this morning. We're gonna start with speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives mercy because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So first we're gonna talk about mercy, then we'll talk about the law. The word mercy is the word elias, okay? Elias, very simple, very easy to say. In some places in the Bible, we actually don't translate this word as mercy. We translate it as compassion. All right? So there's a couple stories. Uh, like when Jesus looked at a Pharisee, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the, sin- the righteous, but the sinners. He said, I desire compassion. That's the word Elias. I desire Elias. So we know God desires Elias. God desires mercy. God desires compassion. This is Jesus saying it, but Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture. This is God's word, okay? Uh, There's also a story where Jesus is talking to an expert in religious law, and he tells this story about a man who's walking down the road, and he gets beaten and left for dead, and some people come by. One's a priest. Does the priest help? No, the priest walks on the other side of the road and ignores him. Then a temple assistant comes by. Does the temple assistant help? No, walks on the other side of the road and walks right by him. But then the man's sworn enemy... A Samaritan comes by, and a Samaritan stops to help this man who has been beaten. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays for his his care and his ongoing care. And he says, if this guy needs anything else, I'll come back and pay his bill. So Jesus says to the expert in religious law, he says, so which of these men was his neighbor? And the expert in religious law looks at Jesus and says, well, it's the one who showed him Elias, compassion, okay? So, showing Elias is what makes you a good neighbor. So God desires it. Us having it makes us a good neighbor. And then when when Peter, the apostle Peter, is writing one of his epistles, he cries out and he says this. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, Elias, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So God desires it. Having it makes us a good neighbor. And God giving it to us gives us new birth and a new hope. Elias is essential. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Mercy is essential. The world we live in often doesn't think so, or at least we don't live in a world that lives like mercy is essential. We want to be commanding, and we want to dominate, and decisive, and we want to get ours. 
So mercy isn't a part of the narrative of the world in which we live often, but mercy is essential. Now, let's talk about law for a second. He says here about the law that gives freedom. And if you think back a couple weeks ago, and we went over this, it showed up in chapter 1, verse 25, and we said, based on some scholars that did some work on this, that the law of freedom could be called the law of liberation. Right? And we said, liberation from what? And we outlined a whole bunch of things. It's liberation from Jewish law, Jewish custom. It's liberation from sin, guilt, and wrath. And in that particular sermon, we were talking about a number of things that had to do with our own way, when we choose our way. And I, I told you a story about a time when I was in high school and got into a fight, remember? And I said, I was trying to seek justice in my way, but my way was not God's way. And so the law of liberation that gives me freedom frees me from always pursuing my way. It frees me to trust in God that God's law of liberation, that God's promise of justice is better than my promise of justice, that God's way of, of giving us justice and getting us justice and leading us in justice is better than my way. We also said that the law of liberation frees us from using hurtful words to tear other people down. The law of liberation frees us to make it really, really hard for us to use our words to tear people down. The law of liberation lays aside a number of things that is all about our way and our control and our power. Now, consider the law of liberation and consider how essential mercy is. Can we try for a moment this morning to understand how much mercy has been shown to us. I want you to think, prior to Jesus, how many hundreds of generations were subject to Jewish law and Jewish custom. Who, they were subject to the idea of, of wrath and pain and vengeance and sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ rather than hold that against all of us, has set that aside and welcomed us in with mercy. And rather than holding all of that against all of us, he sent his son into this world to die on a cross, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through that sacrifice. God made a way where there was no way before through his great mercy through a law of liberation, not a law that's gonna hold every single thing that you've ever done and ever said against you. Can we scratch the surface of understanding how much mercy we've been given? It's essential because I think that's exactly what James has in mind. Speak and act as someone who is going to be judged by the law that gives freedom not the law of Jewish custom, not the law that is written in the Ten Commandments, not the law of the 613, 14 other laws that were made later. Not, no, no, the law that gives freedom, the law of forgiveness, the law of mercy. Speak and act as one who is going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to those who don't give mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak and act as someone who is judged by a law that doesn't hold it against you. So if that law doesn't hold it against you, why would you hold it against anyone else? 
If God's not making you jump through those hoops, then why as a church have we ever in our history made other people jump through hoops? Do you hear me? You see what I'm saying? Church, in general, makes this a priority. God doesn't make us jump through those hoops, but we make all the outsiders, all the new folks, all the people that want to come and be a part of us, well, they got to jump through those hoops. They got to prove to us that they're real, that they've got it together, that they've, what? God's not making you jump through those hoops, so why would you make anyone else jump through those hoops? And maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe asking why would you is the wrong question, because you know what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why you would do that. It doesn't matter if you have done it in the past. It doesn't matter if even the relationships that you have right now, you're making people jump through hoops. It doesn't matter because it means nothing. Whatever that religion is where you think you gotta make people jump through hoops, it's false. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not what he's called you to and all called us to. So it's wrong and it's false. Picture a lawyer that has a case and he's in court. And in order to get his defendant uh, to a guilty verdict, right? So the person, he, he wants to get something thrown out of the court system. So the judge says, yeah, that makes sense. We throw it out of the court system. Person is declared guilty, they go to jail. And you fast forward a little bit of time, and suddenly it's the lawyer who's on trial. And the lawyer wants to use that very thing that he got thrown out to prove he's innocent. And the judge looks at him and says, I'm sorry, sir. We threw that out, so you can't use it either. That is like the world that we live in constantly. We want the mercy. My goodness, we are so thankful for the grace of God because we know how sinful we are, but we keep it a secret. We don't tell anybody. And then when somebody else comes along who wears it on their sleeve, so far from perfect instead of extending the same mercy and grace that's been extended to us we judge we make them jump through hoops and 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 James is saying it's really simple you throw the mercy out now when it's your day the mercy is gonna be thrown out too speak and act as one who lives under the law of freedom not a law of condemnation Show mercy in abundance so that someday that same abundance of mercy can be shown to you. Are you with me? Okay. Now you might say, Nick, that feels pretty heavy. And you're probably right. That feels heavy. But I'm going to tell you that is essential to our faith. That is part of what makes this good news. And the fact that we have a history, and I don't necessarily mean Kanoi has a history. I mean church in general has a history of making people jump through hoops because that is something people know about church. Boy, it really speaks against this being good news. I can't tell you how many times and how many years through different church events that I was at as a kid I heard people talk about the good news, and for the life of me, I could not figure out why they called it good news, because it sounded like a whole lot of bad news, that the road to hell was paved for me. 
We have good news. It's time we act like it. It's time that we actually share good news. The good news is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, please walk away with that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, cutting right to, well, you probably already feel like I cut right to the chase. I'll cut to the chase even more. This morning's sermon is called Hands and Knees. If you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll see there's a picture of hands and knees on there. And the reason is that we're talking about knees for our faith. Like we get on our knees and we repent. We get on our knees and we pray. That's faith. And hands is what we do work with. Right? Knees and hands. Knees and hands. I don't know what it is for you this morning. Are you a lot of knees and no hands? Are you a lot of hands and no knees? You know. I don't know. But you're going to have to think about it. Because what we're called to live is in a world of hands and knees. Not hands or knees. Now, we're going to jump around a little bit. So I read that long passage. I think for us to really understand this well, we've got to jump. So we're going to jump to the end. Verse uh, 21 and 25. James mentions two stories Two Bible stories. One is about a man named Abraham, and the other is about a woman named Rahab. Now, just for your own purposes of reading, if you want to, and if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Um, the story of Abraham is in Genesis 22, and the story of Rahab is in Joshua 2. Okay? So those are the two places. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you the stories really quick. We're not going to go to Genesis 22 and read the whole chapter. We're just going to tell you the story. That way we're on the same page. We're all familiar with what he's talking about. So we'll start with Abraham. James refers to a man named Abraham, and Abraham is thought of as one of the forefathers of our faith. Right? He, goes, he goes way back, all right? At the very beginning, when, when God's people are first being called, when they're being identified, when they're trying to figure out just who God is. It's a day before scriptures are written. It's a day before God has even given his people his name. So it's a, it's a very early on in the relationship between God and his people. God comes to Abraham and calls Abraham to leave the place that he grew up and to go to a promised land that he would show him. And so Abraham, not knowing a whole lot about God, feels that call, hears God's voice, and he gets up, he takes his family, and he goes. And that is a microcosm right there. That's just a little tiny example of what Abraham's life is like. Constantly hearing God call him to do something that sounds hard, tragic, painful, difficult, crazy sometimes, and Abraham follows in faith. He doesn't always get it right. And, and if you're interested, we did a series on Abraham alone a couple of years ago called The Faithful, and it's on our website. You can find it there if you want. We really dig in. The truth of the matter is Abraham messes up quite a bit in his journey with God, but here's the thing. He remains faithful. As much as he messes up, he gets back up and he tries again, and he tries again, and he tries again. And so one of the things that God promises Abraham is that he's gonna have descendants that number the stars in the sky. And so when you hear a promise like that, it's really easy for us to think, oh, that means I'm gonna have a lot of kids. Well, so Abraham waits. He, he does his part trying to have kids and no kids come. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, Hundred years is how old Abraham is when finally, hundred years. Can you imagine being a hundred years and getting your, your, your kid? I can't imagine what that must be like. Hundred years. 
he has a child, the promised child, with his wife. The child's name is Isaac. And I'm cutting to the chase. There's more to that story, but I'm not going to that story right now, okay? So he has this promised child, Isaac. And that's in chapter 21. And in chapter 21, Isaac is born. And in chapter 22, the first thing we read is that God calls Abraham to go to this far-off mountain and sacrifice his son on an altar. What? You said it? What? I can't imagine. Abraham's like, I've been waiting for 100 years for this day, and now you want me to go and take my son and sacrifice him on an altar. And of course, like any good parent in this room, Abraham said no, right? No. (laughs) He didn't say no. He went. He packed up his stuff. He got his son. He put some wood on his back, everything he needed for a sacrifice, and he headed off in the direction of the mountain that God had called him to. The story takes such a weird, strange, twisted turn. Abraham heads to the mountain to make the sacrifice. Can you imagine what he must have felt when he looked at the road in front of him? Can you imagine how much like pain and just the wind knocked out of him that he must have felt? And here's what James says about Abraham. He says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Now look, this isn't the beginning. Abraham doesn't have a whole bunch of scripture to look back on and say, oh, who's God? Well, let me read this proverb about who God is or this psalm. He doesn't have that stuff. But what if, what if Abraham so trusted the character of God from what he knew, from all they had been through up to this point. I mean, it's 100, he's 100 years old. He's got some stories to tell. There's a whole life before his kid comes on the scene where God has interacted with him in a whole bunch of ways that has begun to build his faith in this God, where he's begun to recognize the characteristics of God. And so as he looks at the road in front of him and sees how much pain and hardship is there, he might actually trust the character of God so much that he's willing to take the step even though his earthly eyes can only see one thing and that's pain and tragedy. This is Abraham's, I have to imagine, this is Abraham's worst nightmare. Many of us in this situation would feel like God has rejected me, God is absent, he's not here. But think, think about what we learned last week. Why is it that James has such harsh words for people that show favoritism in the church? Who look upon the poor and judge them, who look upon whatever, who judge people, who show favoritism. It's because our earthly eyes can't see what God's eyes can see. God has a special place and a special assignment for those who look poor in our earthly eyes. Our earthly eyes deceive us. Now, think back a little further. What did we learn about sin from James? He asked the question, is it God causing us to sin? Is God throwing sin in our face? And he says, no way. It might feel like that, but actually every good and perfect gift comes from God. The thing that gets you into sin, well, that's that's your own desire for forbidden things. Don't trust your earthly eyes. Trust my eyes. The good gifts come from me. Or think about what, what James says about God's justice and righteousness. When we look at the world and and we say, look, I want to get justice, 
when high school Nick got into that fight and just wanted to get justice. I used my earthly eyes to find a way for justice. And what did we learn? My ways aren't God's ways. God has a better way of justice. He has a whole different path to righteousness. God's ways aren't our ways. Don't trust your eyes. Do you see a theme developing? For James, he has this idea that our eyes consistently deceive us. That what we look out when we see the landscape of the world and we say, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. God's against me here. God's making me stumble here. God is not causing those things. He's saying, stop trusting your eyes. And then he takes us back to Abraham. And he goes, remember that time, that crazy story that you all remember about our forefather Abraham sacrificing his son? Why would any parent in their right mind go through with a request like that? Because Abraham didn't trust his earthly eyes. He trusted the character of God. He trusted what God showed him to be true about who God was. And so then when Abraham came to the mountain and Abraham built the altar and Abraham bound his son, he was still trusting the character of God. And it is that God who intervenes, who stops Abraham's hand so that Isaac may go on, so that Isaac may live, so that the generations that follow would number the stars in the sky and God's promises came true. Abraham didn't trust his eyes, he trusted the character of God. When he does that, James says, something is created called righteousness. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I showed you a page in my notes, and I have it on a slide, Randy, if you find it there. I don't know if you can see it on the screen or not. This is the word that means righteousness. It's the condition acceptable to God. When Abraham trusts God's character over his earthly eyes, this is what is created, the condition acceptable to God. Now, now, go, now James tells us another story. He says, also, don't just remember Abraham. He's like, I've got, I've got more proof than that. Remember Rahab. Remember Rahab the prostitute. I, I love the story of Rahab. And you know why? Because, because she's a prostitute. I love it because my experience, which hasn't always been positive with church, is that church people like to judge. It's true of today and it's true even all the way back to biblical times. Because in biblical times, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the house churches in Rome. And in Romans 1, you might be familiar with it, he is just listing off all the wrong kinds of people. You know, he's writing this letter to the house churches, and this, this is being read to the house churches. And so if I was just reading Romans 1 to you, you would be the people in the house churches. And Paul is saying all these things. So I wrote them down. He said, he's talking about... Um, wicked people and so the people in the house church are like yeah wicked people we're not them and he says oh foolish people and they're like oh foolish people we're not them oh the sexual immorality oh yeah that's not us that's not us and he goes on he talks about gossips and liars and slanderers and people who are arrogant and people who are atheists who don't even believe that god exists and he's hyping up the house churches and they're going yeah 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 that's that's not us that's somebody else 
And Paul does all the hyping, names all the people, names all the things that they think are so wrong and so bad and all the people that fall into that category so that they're all hyped up going, oh yeah, yeah, those people. So glad that's them and that's not us. So glad it's them, it's not us. And then Paul drops the hammer in chapter two of Romans. He walked him into a trap and he goes, guess what? You're no better. You're no better because you've judged them. You sat here going, yeah, 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 that's not us. He's like, you just showed me, you just proved it to me. What did James say last week? You break one part of the law, you break the whole law, right? You're no better, he says. So I love stories about people like Rahab, who's a prostitute, because it humbles us. Because it's so easy for us to think about someone like Rahab, who's a sex worker, and we're like, well, there's no way that this person's able to see God or hear God or find God or follow God. No way. They're so bad, and I'm so glad I'm not them. You know what's even better about Rahab? Is that Rahab is Jesus's 35th great-grandmother. And I love that even more. If that doesn't slap you across the face with your judgmental heart, I don't know what will this morning. But that is why I love Rahab. So what's the story about Rahab? You can find it in Joshua too. And it's pretty simple, it's pretty easy. It sounds like something out of a James Bond movie or something. So Rahab is a prostitute and she lives in this city called Jericho and Jericho is this city with a gigantic wall all the way around it. And Rahab's house is actually in the wall that surrounds the city. And Joshua wants to conquer the city, so what does he do? Joshua, like a good military leader, he sends some spies into the city to check it out. Check out the fortifications, get the layout of the city, find out how big their army is, look at it all. And Joshua's spies are almost caught. You know, and this is where our spy movie comes in. James Bond's running down the hallway. Guards are chasing him. He doesn't know where to go. So he quick ducks into a room. And whose room is it? Rahab's room. All right? So he ends up in, the, in Rahab the prostitute's house. These two spies are there. And what does she do? She could scream and call the guards over. But she doesn't. She looks at them and goes, you guys are, you guys are Israelites, aren't you? And they're like, we are. You know, they owned up to it right there. She goes... I've heard of your God. We've all heard of your God. We heard what your God did in Egypt. We heard what your God did to the Red Sea. We know how powerful your God is. Honestly, the city is scared of you guys. I think if your God wants you to have this city, I'll help you. And so rather than turning them into the guards who are chasing them, she hides them under these bundles of straw that she was drying on the roof of her house. When the guards come knocking on the door, they're like, hey, we saw those two spies go in here. And they're like, oh, yeah, they went, they went that away. And then Rahab went and got the spies, and she sent them that away out of the city. And she saved them. That's the story. And what does James say about her? He says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? Righteous a condition of being acceptable to God. Wasn't she considered righteous for that? Hmm. See, now we can read the middle of the passage that I read before. Now we can dig into that. But we have to remember what we've learned up to this point. This, the whole point this morning has been to remind us about mercy, how important mercy is, how important it is to show mercy don't use your earthly eyes to see. Walk by faith. 
It's not just about what you believe. It's not just about you saying the right thing. It's about you living in a certain way. What good is it? What good is it for Rahab to go, I've heard about your God, but then act like she hasn't? Verses 14 and 19. I'm just going to read them again to remind us. James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, then what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Well, then show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I mean, James doesn't mince his words. He is saying right now to us, get your act together. If you come across somebody who has got a physical need right in front of you, and you have the ability to help, but what you say is, you don't laugh. Of course you wouldn't laugh, right? That's not realistic. You come across somebody with physical needs, you have the ability to help, and what you say is, hey, I'm praying for you. Then what good is it? James, I mean, he is calling all of us out on the carpet this morning, me included. What good is it? Faith without deeds. That's knees without hands. James says, look, even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe in God. They're not gonna go live for God, but at least they believe in God. You believe in God, but you're not living for him? Huh, heard about that before somewhere. Guess you're no better than, oh man. James is harsh. It's not faith or deeds, guys. It's faith and deeds. What good is it for Abraham to believe in the character of the God he has come to trust if his life doesn't show that he trusts that God. It's no good. And that's what James is telling us this morning. He's like, hey, here's the secret. It's no good. If you have faith without deeds, it's no good. And that's gonna bring us to the last verse this morning. And this is the one where I'm gonna show you my notes. So look at verse 26. Very short, very sweet, very simple. It says this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I'll throw my notes up on the screen. We'll just walk through it. What I did is a little different this week. I wrote out the whole sentence. And again, if you can't read it, that's okay. We're gonna talk about it. I wrote out the body without the spirit is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. And then under that, I just, I look at the Greek words, okay? And so I chose body, spirit, dead, faith, and deeds because those are the ones that really stick out to me. And if I've misunderstood this verse or if I've heard it preached wrongly in the past, getting these words right is gonna help me be correct in my understanding of the verse today. That's why I've picked out those words. Now remember, Greek is a, it's a, it's a fun language, especially biblical Greek. There's so much to it. It's not just a flat word. There's all this image to it. There's all this depth to all of these words. And so the first word is the word soma. It means body. 
The body without the spirit is dead. That's a big statement. What, what are you talking about? And then the truth is, it's, it's as simple as we think. That word soma means the living body. All right? It means flesh and blood. It's not an idea of a body. It is the physical body. And, and a more of an artsy way of saying it that I came across in some of my research was that it's talking about the shadow caster, not the shadow. It's talking about the shadow caster, not the shadow. It's talking about our body, okay? Now, the body without the spirit is dead. And spirit, that's a word you guys have probably heard before. It's the word pneuma. And if you have been doing the church thing long enough, you might remember a video series that was put out by a pastor named Rob Bell back in the early 2000s called pneuma videos. It's based off of this word, pneuma. And there's a whole bunch of words that go with it that I wrote down. Things like uh, feeling, thinking, deciding, desiring, acting. Our spirit, pneuma, is kind of responsible for all of that in a biblical understanding of how the body works, okay? But the other other simple truth is pneuma also means um, movement of air, like spirit, right? So our flesh and blood body, without the movement of air, is dead, and dead means dead. The word necros means deceased, it means lifeless, it means breathless. So anybody in here that's ever been a first responder, an EMT, never taken a CPR class ever, then you can attest to the very simple fact of the matter that if the body does not have movement of air in it, then it doesn't have life anymore, right? Okay, so it, it really is that simple, it's that plain, black and white, right? The body with no breath has no life. And James says, you get that, we all get that, because we've all dealt with death in some way, shape, or form. We get it. He says, well, then faith without deeds is just as dead. And what's faith? Faith is belief. Faith is your conviction of truth. It's your trust in God. It's your confidence in God. If you, don't, if you have that, but you don't have the work, the labor, the doing part of it, you don't have the hands part, you got all knees and no hands, he says, look, that is as dead as a body that has no breath in it anymore. Which is a pretty huge statement when you think about it. And this is a tension the church has lived in for two millennia, is how do we describe this idea of faith and works? Because, Nick, I thought we were saved by grace. We are, absolutely. But as we talked about last week, that grace, that saving, that work of Jesus Christ has to do something in us. It does something in us, and and when it changes something in us, we become different. And if that doesn't happen, then we have to go back and go, did that, did I, did I meet Jesus? Did I get it? I mean, did I, and this isn't to make anybody question their salvation. It's not to make uh, anybody question their, their conversion experience. It's just simply true. Perhaps you really did encounter Jesus, but you put the walls of defense up and said, look, Jesus, I love the idea of you, but these parts of my life, I'm not giving those to you. Maybe you did the rich young ruler thing. I'm going to do everything but one thing. And Jesus says, the one thing is what I want. Give me the one thing, and you have eternal life. And he walks away, and he's sad. His whole life, he followed every single command. He did it all right. He knew all the right answers. He acted the right way. But there was that one thing. And so maybe there's the one thing. You put your defenses up and said, God, I'm not giving that to you. 
If we don't have the work to go with the conviction of beliefs, then do we really have the conviction of beliefs? If we don't have the deeds to go with our trust in God, then do we really have the trust in God? If we don't have the, the labor going with our confidence in God, then do we really have the confidence in God? It's just a math problem. We're just working backwards now. We're saying here's the evidence. The evidence of our lives is saying this, or it's saying this. Which one for you? There's just no way for me to know everybody in this room or everybody that's watching online so intimately that I can answer that question for you, which is why it's absolutely essential this morning that you ask that question of yourself. I mean, if you're serious about this, if you want to dig into this, if you really want to understand how this makes your life change, then you've got to dig in and you've got to answer the question for yourself. If you do the math problem, are you all knees and no hands? you all hands and no knees? Or are you living in a place right now where actually you've got a pretty good balance? I'm spending time on my knees in prayer. I'm spending time on my knees in repentance, and I'm working with my hands. Maybe that's, and that's wonderful. If that's where you're at, I want to celebrate with you. But the simple truth of the matter is most of us aren't in that place when we're honest with ourselves. Our conviction of belief doesn't mean anything if it's not lived out in our life. So I'm going to finish up this morning with a couple questions for you. They're rhetorical. I don't want you to answer them out loud. I want you to think about them. Is there a need within your family, at work, on your very doorstep that you see every day that you walk by? Something that God has made sure is present in your life is right in front of you and you continue to ignore it. Where do you need to trust God more? The work of your hands or the faith of your knees? Which one? Maybe it's something like being like on the church prayer chain for a really long time and enjoying the updates, but you can't remember the last time you actually said a prayer. You want it, but you're not actually taking the step to follow through with it. Maybe you feel like God's been calling you to do something that sounds crazy, that sounds so big and so hard, and rather than pursue it, You've chosen to ignore it or doubt it or to put it off. Maybe you're somebody who has been serving and volunteering really hard so that you don't have to ask some of the hard questions about your faith, about your beliefs. Or maybe a way to look at it this morning is to ask the question, who do you identify with this morning? You identify with Rahab the prostitute? Abraham, the father of many? the poor who are ignored or the person doing the ignoring? Or maybe it's about mercy to go all the way back to the beginning. Maybe it's about trusting that God's mercy is actually as good as is promised in Scripture. And you've been struggling with that. Maybe you keep yourself so busy so you don't think about mercy so much. Or maybe you're somebody who just has not shown a lot of mercy to others. Here's what I want you to know this morning. I don't want anybody, least of all God, calling my faith dead or lifeless. And I have to imagine that I'm not alone in this room with that desire. 
What it does mean is I have to ask myself, just like you're asking yourself, what areas in my life need to change? And I need to be willing to get out of the comfortable chair that I'm sitting in and make the change. Are you willing to get out of the comfortable chair that you're sitting in? Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna ask you to stand up. I'm gonna ask you not to sit right now. I'm gonna ask you to stand. I might feel a little weird to you. If you're able to stand, stand. If you can't stand, that's okay. I wanna wanna help us move our body just a little bit to maybe take the first step. I, I don't want anybody to stay still this morning. I don't want you to stay in a place where you're like, you know what, it's good enough. You know what, it's just that one thing that I have away from God that I'm not giving to him. I I want you to want it all. I want you to be all in. And so I wanna invite you to sing the next song that we sing. And for some of you, you're like, I know what I gotta change and I am willing to do that. I'm willing to do that without moving. I, I I know I'm gonna, tomorrow morning when I see that person, I am gonna be more merciful and you make the change. Some of you are going to want to sing the next song as loudly as you can as a way of committing that you're going to make a change to Jesus. Some of you might want to come up and pray at the altar this morning. And all of that is fine. I want you to know that this is always open for you. If, if it's important for you to come and kneel to make the change, then come and kneel and make the change. If it's something you can do from your seat while you sing a song, then do it that way. But what's most important is not this and it's not that. It's that when you leave this place and you go out there this week that you actually make the change. That's what's important. So my friends, I want to invite you into that. I want to pray with you as we sing the next song, as we we say these words together, that none of us stay put, that we are all moved, that none of us remain unchanged this morning. Because the simple truth of the matter is, we just don't know about tomorrow. Look, I, I don't, I mean, I have been to so many funerals recently and done so many funerals, and I'm going to do one right after church today, and I'm so tired of funerals. But the thing that it reminds me is that I just don't know about tomorrow. I just know about right now. That's not me trying to scare you or trick you or coerce you or manipulate you. It's just the truth of the matter. Let's not stay put. Let's live this thing out in a way that changes the world. Not for us, not for my name, not for your name, but for the name of Jesus Christ. Because I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ has something to offer that heals the world and the people in it. And there's nothing else that does it. Amen? Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.